How's it going, everyone? Uh, today's guest today, we have Barry Kirch, the drummer for the Platinum Rock Band Shinedown, and our always wonderful guest, John Norris, a retired game warden, author, wildlife conservationist. It just, uh, we're fortunate to have you guys both out here. Thank you. Good to be here, man. Thanks for having me. So with everything kind of going on with COVID, how have you guys kind of reacted to your kind of your scheduling, your day-to-day -day life? Was there ever a hurdle at the beginning where you're kind of like, man, I can't keep practicing drums. I need to step back for a week just to kind of figure out what's going on. Or John, I can't, I need to step away from the news because this police movement right now is affecting me. How have you guys kind of adapted to that? Uh, you know, it's been, it's been kind of a blessing to disguise for me because, you know, we left the road, uh, John, uh, back in December of last year. And we were planning on doing festivals and stuff this year, but it was going to be a sparse year anyway because we were planning on writing the next record. So to actually be home, even with, you know, the horribleness of the virus and everything, to be home with my family for a full year has been awesome and insane. Nice. You know, Relearning re my wife and daughter. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's been great. We've been, you know, that has given me and kind of the, one of the topics of this whole uh, podcast today is, is being outdoors and things. And, and we do have done some camping. We're actually planning a camping trip uh, next week for a couple weeks up in the mountains of Georgia. So nice. that part has been nice. And also I injured my elbow earlier this year. So I've had time to recover. I've been in physical therapy and stuff for almost six months now um, and getting better and I'm back to playing, but I wasn't even able to do that. So those festivals that we had lined up would have been uh, difficult at best. Um, Brutal, and, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I had so, to cover uh, it. Don't worry about it. That's fine. <laughs> I know you do. Um, so that's been my year. It's been actually a, a, a hidden blessing with everything going on. Yeah, and I got to, Barry, I got to kind of mirror what you're saying. It, it was a blessing in disguise for us as well. Um, you know, having just retired, my new book dropping last year and on the road for the book and podcast and teaching and training and speaking. Um, it, it was getting pretty hectic and making the transition from California to permanently up here in Montana in the most remote area of Montana, which is quote unquote, God's country for wilderness and good hunting that, you know, three generations of Norris's are all about. I hadn't had that opportunity yet running that team in California to really be here for a whole winter season into a spring and into a summer and explore high lakes and mountain trout and really dial in for the hunting season that's going on now. And, um, just taking kind of a, a tactical pause from all the PR and, and, and groups, group things has been uh, unplanned, but a uh, good refreshing with the family. Just like you're saying, we've experienced the same thing and uh, feeling fresh and, and revitalized for when it does open up here pretty quick. Yeah. Barry brought up, uh, we're touring Europe. The first time I actually came across you, I know Barry did, is when Eric Bass, the bass player, shot down. Uh, he, go, he goes deep into the Joe Rogan podcast or just anything out yeah. there where it's like, learning or interesting minds and so he's like hey you guys gotta check out this one with john you and uh that's kind of our first interaction with you um and i kind of reached out and um so doing those kind of talks and for you as barry is this is it difficult to kind of put yourself out there when you're not kind of used to that i know barry obviously with touring you have to with press and promo but you've been doing a lot of stuff recently now like photography podcasts and stuff where people might not really know that side of you. Is it tough to go out there and kind of put yourself in a different limelight that you're not used to? For me? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I have to play as a team member of Shinedown. You really, you don't sense yourself cause we never been, you know, you're not asked as a member of the band to sense yourself, but, um, you really, we follow the music and, and, and the message behind our music is always kind of a positive thing and overcoming things. So you kind of ride that line because sometimes you get those interviews where they're just trying to get you at an aha moment or, or oh, I got yeah. you at this or, or those kinds of things. And that's not what the band is about. You know, if we were Rage Against the Machine and we were heavily political leaning band, that might be something we do. Um, but that's not us. So we really, I try to ride that line and maybe steer the conversation a different direction, not to avoid those things, but to protect the entity of who we are. I mean, I think it was Michael Jordan years ago, and, and you know, I don't ever get into politics publicly, but years ago he was asked why he didn't support the Clinton Foundation or something like that. And he's like, well, you know, Republicans buy shoes too. And he's right. You know, yeah, our brand right. is about entertaining yeah. and making positive messages, and that's where right. I keep 
Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know, John, on, on that note, for me, it's, uh, you know, I did a lot of outreach when I ran our, our marijuana enforcement team and built that team that we talked about. And you guys heard about on Rogan. 30% of the job as being a lieutenant of that particular unit was outreach and education. And, you know, we had done reality TV. We had done three years of that Wild Justice TV show at National Geographic, the first game worn reality show. So a lot of us on the team were used to the TV exposure and things like that. But there was always a little bit of agency umbrella restrictions. Of course, very like you just said, we couldn't go political. I had to be really careful what I said and what I could share. And then all of a sudden I come into retirement, the new book launches and I, you know, I'm asked to come on to Joe's show. And, and meat eater and guys like that and speak freely. And, you know, it, even though I can do that now, how freely can I really speak? You know, it's kind of a whole new, it's a whole new world, so to speak. And, you know, I've been able to kind of let my hair down and, and speak freely and not get too political, but just keep it to core value stuff that us as conservationists and true Americans kind of love second amendment stuff, uh, regardless where you sit on the political spectrum, which I know we're going to talk about later guys, but that's been kind of refreshing. I know from all my teammates that are back at agencies still risking their lives every day and doing the work, kind of watching what we're doing here. They're like, hey, go for it. This is great. Get the message out. It helps us. It helps keep us safe. It helps educate everybody on both sides of the fence. But uh, but we can't do it. So it's all on you now. So it's uh, it's been, been that kind of weird adjustment to, like you said, Barry, knowing what to say and not going too far in and too political, especially with the with Shinedown, which, you know, you guys have such a great positive, uplifting, unifying message as a band. And I've been following you guys for 15 years. So on that note, I was really glad when John reached out. And I uh, know you bet, man. I've been uh, looking forward to this conversation, obviously. And when John did reach out after uh, you guys watched that podcast, I was all set to come to a couple shows in the Northwest and rock with you guys and tell you about our cover and just share some experiences. And then the super pandemic dropped. So uh, looking yeah. forward to doing that when we when we all get back to uh, real world entertainment, you know. Hopefully sooner than later, because I'm, I'm itching to play a show. It's been, you know, I, I oh, yeah. just saw my guys for the first time this past weekend, because it was my bass player's birthday, and we all got together up in Charleston, which is about four hours north of me. And I tell you what, it was strange. I haven't secluded myself. You know, I haven't been like super crazy in a bunker. But it was still strange to see everyone and be in a different city. And I know, John, you've been traveling with the guys, but I haven't left aside from maybe going camping. And when I go camping, I don't want to go to one of these parks with a water slide. I want to go in the woods. You know, mostly national parks where I get away. So it was very strange to be around people. Brent uh, was saying, uh, our last show in Atlanta that this is the longest he's actually gone without seeing Barry. And, uh, and he kind of puts it in perspective of the fact you guys have been along together for so long. Yeah. And it's just, it's just very fascinating too. And it was very heartfelt when he said it. And uh, we made it was comments odd, about you your know? beard. Right. It, did, <laughs> it didn't feel like time had passed, but you know, the last time I saw him was when we stepped off stage in, in London and then we went to the hotel wow. and everybody got on flights the next morning. And that was what this, December of last year, so December twenty third, to just disappear, and wow. we've talked on the phone, not the same. Yeah, ten months away from your core, man. That that's a big gap. I know. Yeah. Uh, I know for us up here in Montana, and we have a very small, you know, cover band and play mostly clubs and small venues and outdoor shows, but woodsy and hard classic rock. And uh, we were set for ten or eleven gigs through the summer, and they all, of course, got squashed because of COVID. Um, and we finally got back together for the first time Labor Day weekend. We had one outdoor show that we could be on a high stage back away from everybody and people could come bring their bikes or motorcycles and kind of sp- spread out. Um, it wasn't a huge show, obviously, because of COVID, but it was it was surreal to be back up in front of people and, you know, getting the jitters and, you know, not having time. We couldn't even practice together because we were all separated because of COVID scare up here in Montana and the guys got kids. They didn't want to have exposure issues and it was uh it was it was quite a almost like a, a phase two or starting over again you know what yeah brand new i don't know what it. that's going to feel like the first time we actually get back on stage as a band it's going to be uh, <laughs> there'll be a lot of unforced errors <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's rock and roll yeah oh man yeah yeah we were, we were... <laughs> starting with you barry the fact that something you can't control obviously affected what you do for work how do you mentally kind of deal with that type of stuff and what advice do you have for others that are kind of like they're affected by this so they can't do what they love or normally do how do you kind of what advice do you have for those type of people that are, that have that have struggled or are currently struggling with the idea that something they love to do they can't do right now sure um it's difficult and i've gone through 
and my wife noticed it, especially early on, once these things started getting shut down and the gigs started getting shut down and, and um, you know, let's put finances aside for a minute. And those are real, obviously real world, right. world issues, but uh, just the emotional side of this, you know, when those went away, my wife noticed that I got depressed um, yep. and I did. And I'm man enough to admit it that I was bummed that I couldn't do what I love. You know, I'm very lucky to do what I love for a living and want to continue doing that. And when that's stripped away, and it's just like, no, you can't do this um, with your guys. That was difficult. I think what I had to do was, and the injury didn't help because that put me even darker because I couldn't practice at home on my drums behind me. I was just stuck. Right. Yeah. Um, so you find, I think the biggest thing is to first admit it to yourself that, hey, I'm not doing okay. Talk to your wife, talk to a significant other, talk to a friend, talk to the grocery store clerk, I don't care. Um, talk to somebody, but, uh, and then, find an outlet for me it was reading or um cooking in the kitchen which i've always enjoyed you know that's my second passion is is cooking so really diving into that and maybe distracting my brain with those things because it's going to be there i mean right now i'm still yeah. have the itch but at least now i'm back to playing i'm in the studio i'm recording stuff for friends of mine guys that need drum tracks and other bands and stuff like that and shinedown will be getting in the studio soon so there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but when you get yeah. that darkness, uh, the best thing you can do, at least for me and what works for me is distraction. Unfortunately, that's just what you have to do. You know? How about you, John? Yeah, I'm, I'm in the same boat. Um, Barry said it well, is, is finding that little distraction. I remember um, when, when it really dropped, when, when stuff was really shutting down, it wasn't just piecemeal. I mean, we were going into lockdown. I made the, uh, I was in California at the time because things are really ramping up with uh, everything publicly, everything we were doing. Most podcasts were in person in studios until this whole Zoom thing started that we've been doing, fortunately, because of COVID, right, guys? Uh, but I remember packing up two vehicles when I normally only bring one and grabbing family members and saying, you know what, we're, we're leaving California, maybe forever, <laughs> you know, because we still do a lot of work in, in the old Golden State, even though living up here permanently in Montana. And I didn't expect to be back. We did not know what the state of the world was going to be. And not being a, you know, a fanatic prepper or anything on that level, we are prepared, obviously, from, from being prepared to sustain on any level. You know, food shortages, the supply chain was going to go down. We, we saw all those warning signs. Um, we knew we were coming back to a very small, I mean, we're in the smallest county in the least populated state of Montana, closest to the Canadian border. So we're a small self-sufficient town. Everybody hunts, everybody fishes. You know, you have a lot of tactically savvy people, a lot of military veterans, a lot of law enforcement veterans, et cetera. So we knew this was the place to be. But once we got here and we're in snow and it's winter and, and everything's just kind of locked down and everyone's staying away from each other, it's like, dang, what now? Okay, so we can train, we can work out every day, we can read. Uh, I can work on music by myself, work on lyrics till I'm blue in the face of my mini studio here at the house. I can't see my bandmates. Uh, there's no hunting seasons going on. Uh, I can do a little bit of, uh, you know, pistol carving, and but I don't have any students to teach because I can't come to classes like usual. So I went through a little bit of what you're saying, Barry. I went through a, a quasi-depression, if you will. It was, man, it was, uh, okay, this is the whole new world. And, um, you know, and for my thing, John, to, to your question is I try to look at a positive out of every negative, no matter how extreme it gets. And I looked at it as what you said very earlier. This was time I could really focus on my Montana family. You know, got a lot of older relatives here that kind of set the generations of conservation that I could spend more time with. They're getting way up there in age. And we're not going to have them around much longer. So, you know, I mean, it's just we're all in that. We're, we're just at that, you know, maturity phase. So spending more time with family. Um, and getting to focus a little more thoroughly without distractions on things like training, things like survival, refreshing my prep skills because I had to pass it on and teach people up here that, that I had hanging out and, and family and friends that were, you know, very, very naive to the whole. Well, if I have to sustain myself with food and we have to go kill a deer or grass in the backyard because we're out of protein or the power is out for good, how do I even do that? You know, how do I skin, gut it, preserve it? How do I kill it humanely? Uh, you know, I haven't shot really. Uh, what bullets do I use? I mean, there was a, a lot of those questions being asked. So um, 
I, I looked at that as a challenge and I looked at that as an opportunity to, uh, to bring community together and just prepare us as a community and uh, started doing things like this. The podcast, when we started to go to remote session and I started doing podcasts with you, John, on you know our interviews. And then I started to co-host the Game Warden podcast, uh, Warden's Watchberry, which is the only Game Warden podcast in the country I co-host with a, a New Hampshire uh, retired lieutenant. And then we started the Thin Green Line, so it doesn't only have to be Game Wardens because one thing COVID taught us guys, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but no matter where you sat on the left or the right and not getting political, there was a 30% increase in hunting license sales nationally between April and May. And there was this, as you guys know, this massive surge of firearms purchases and ammunition purchases by anti-gunners, people that didn't want anything to do with firearms, never wanted to kill an animal because they saw the writing on the walls and went, oh man, you know, this is something I might have to provide for my family. So I took that as a unifying, you know, kind of situation that came out of COVID where, you know, the hardest left and the most, and hardest right could at least meet halfway and say, this is about humanity and keeping people alive and keeping our country intact. And this is a unifying moment. Let's come together. Let's not play to the fringes and throw the hate like we're doing. Um, so I, I think that was a positive. And I know from the standpoint of being a game warden and a conservationist, seeing that surge of license sales, that interest, the online hunter education classes being done, uh, great thing to see in the country, something we've just desperately asked to get back because we think we've lost a generation of people that go camping, right, Barry, and get to see the right. sunrise and get away from the water slide parks or the RV parks, like where you take your family. I mean, back in the Silicon Valley in California, where I'm originally from in LA, that's kind of a lost art, you know, kids just aren't yeah. seeing that. So that was a positive out of a very, very horrible event in COVID for, for lack of a better, uh, better, better concept. Yeah. Let's kind of talk about the, uh, the firearm stuff. I know, as you said, John, that uh, politically it's been brought in the limelight. We had that couple, I think, in Minnesota, Missouri, that yep. had the people come yep. in that brandished their weapons. And no matter what side you're on, like they legally own the guns. Like there's no arguing there. But I guess, and I know I've talked with you, Barry and Eric, about this and John off the podcast, but I'm so pro Second Amendment and the Constitution and the right to bear arms. But with that, I do think that just because you're allowed or you're, the Constitution says you can own a firearm does not mean you should. You should take the training. You should understand how to clean the gun, who made the weapon. So there's got to be this all this stuff that goes into it where if you do have to brandish your firearm, you know you can articulate why you're doing it and the reason for doing it and the consequences of pulling your gun. Because if you guys know, if you pull your gun, you got to get ready to pull the trigger. There's no transitioning back from that. Right. Yes. So how important is, for people that do want to buy a gun, how important is the knowledge and the training and getting the right licenses? I think it's everything, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, hand somebody a hammer and say, hey, hammer a nail, it's a tool. But if you right. don't know how, you can't hammer a nail. Um, yeah. And a hammer can kill you too. A, a, a gun is a weapon and a tool, and it'll kill you a lot quicker. And you better know what you're doing because, you know, how many people even – professionals that have used a gun have hurt themselves, shot themselves in the leg, things like that, by not paying attention to right. basic rules of, of owning a firearm. And I've been in that that place too, where I'm like, did I unload it? I, oh, I better double check and make sure, you know? Um, yeah. Make sure you grab your concealed out of your car, people. Don't let it get stolen. We have a rampant case of that in Jacksonville right now where people are idiots and leaving their guns in their cars and ending up getting stolen. I'm like, well, put it away. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think training is everything and I could always use more training. Hopefully, John, we can get together at some point and do some training because there's always Absolutely. something to learn. And I'm not a professional. You were trained professionally, John. You were also trained professionally with firearms. I'm just a normal citizen who had to learn by taking classes and doing online classes and learning from my elders and people that introduced me to guns. Um, nice. And I still take it extremely serious. I think if you own a firearm, you better know how to use it, take it apart, clean it put it back together and shoot it properly. Yeah, Barry, that, that, that statement of mentality, I, I like the way you say that. It's not just, hey, I've got the gun now. I've shot 20 rounds through it. I went through a little CCW qualification of 10 rounds. I mean, there's these really what I consider very sub-basic classes to yes. get people in a defensive mindset, especially, like you said, right, but that don't have a firearms background where they weren't raised on weapons from everything. Did I unload it? Condition to carry? Where is it stored? 
Um, and this is this is this is the negative of what I said before when we talked about that 30% increase in license sales and all these firearm purchases. Everybody went out and bought the tool and they got the placebo, you know, they got the placator, and then they they couldn't train um because of COVID. And even if they could, were they really gonna get that much training? And a lot of the students I do teach are a lot of first-time gun owners, whether they're men or women, uh families, and they're like, oh, okay, well, when do we shoot? I go, well, we're going to shoot. But the first thing we're going to do is we're going to go over handling safety, what holster you're going to carry, what your locking mechanism is based on the state you're in. And coming from California, that has a lot of very stringent gun laws, as I'm sure you guys know. Mm-hmm. Um, that's half the battle. You know, I, if, if I'm going to put a gun in somebody's hands that might have to take a life to save theirs, that is the biggest level of responsibility, I think. I think it's like being a parent, basically. I think gun ownership is like being the best parent you can with very deadly consequences either way and on an extreme level. Um, so we go into all that. We go into whatever weapon system somebody has in front of me. We're going to break it down. We're going to clean it. We're going to source it so it's reliable. We're going to store it. And then we're going to get into the legality and the mindset of what you have to be prepared for mentally, the aftermath, legally, who you need to call, what you need to articulate on 911, what rules of deadly force engagement does the penal code in any particular state allow you to do because just because someone's threatening your yard doesn't mean you can shoot them you know and people that's one of the issues on the minnesota case and you know the the different cases going on throughout the country and there's some really good citizens that are just defending their property from pretty violent looters and rioters that are finding themselves in hot water because of the interpretation of that particular state so um there's so much more to it right barry like you said than just Now, I, I've learned the proficiency of hammering that nail and not hitting my finger. I can shoot a gun. I can hit a target maybe, but so much more to it. There is. And you know, the thing you brought up about the law, that's probably one of those most important. I mean, if you are unfortunately put in that situation, and God forbid any of us ever are, uh, you're going to jail. Uh, right. No matter what, you're going to jail and you better be ready for that. And hopefully you followed all the laws and you can get out and you're found justified. But you're at least going for a minute and uh, you took a life and that's horrific. You know, I think anybody, and I don't have the experience and don't want it, but anybody that's taken a life, I can't imagine what that does to you psychologically, good or bad. Even if you're defending yourself, you know that you took a life. Um, and the laws are very different state to state. I mean, you being a Californian, they're amazingly strict, almost overly so in some respects. And Florida is amazingly loose, almostly over so over as well um, to where, you know, I remember the basic concealed weapons course. You, you get done with your course, they teach you the laws, you walk into a room, they have a 22 in a box and you pull the trigger on it. Okay. You shot a gun next. Yeah. It's go, like, go for it. <laughs> this person gets to get a gun. Yeah. <laughs> Conceal it. This is crazy. Um, so yeah, I think there's a balance on, on both sides for sure. How are you guys like your significant others? Uh, I know Barry, you have a daughter, but is there is that something where you kind of show your daughter how to um, treat a firearm, or does she kind of like shoot the BB gun, or is there stuff where there you kind of help these your kids or whatever kind of grow up to appreciate the firearm and respect it? Yeah, um, definitely. I, with my daughter, she's nine, and uh, she's very much a girly girl. So she's not. Uh, she loves being outdoors and exploring the outdoors and animals and things like that, but. It, I don't know if she'll ever be a hunter. Maybe when she gets older, that's kind of thing. But she also doesn't like loud noises. And I don't think she's mentally ready enough to handle a true firearm. That being said, uh, she is a crack shot with a Red Rider BB gun. Love it. Nice. <laughs> We've spent a lot of time with that um, Red Rider, And she knows how to use it. Knows not, you know, basic gun rules. Don't point it at anybody. Don't point it at towards the house. Don't, you know, nice. those simple, simple things maybe you don't think about. And then you see her do it. She's like talking to you and moving the gun around. No, let's put point that towards the ground Um, and, uh, you know, finger off the trigger until you're ready to shoot all those simple things. Uh, But when I have, you know, say we're getting ready for a trip or I'm getting ready to leave the house and I have my concealed and I've pulled it out. Or if I've come home from hunting and my hunting rifle is with me, any of those types of things, she knows what it is. I've shown it to her. I show her that it's not loaded. And I also explain to her this, you don't touch. And then it goes in the safe or it goes with me. Right. Um, and nice. she knows to respect that. She knows that if it's on the counter and we're getting ready to go somewhere, she's not going to go over there and try to, ooh, what's that? She knows you don't touch that. And I also don't have it on the counter loaded. It's unloaded and the clip's not in it. 
Um, simple things like that, especially around nine-year-old kids are, you know, my daughter's very respectful now, but who's to say when she's 12, she might get a little curious. You don't know. Right. So you better be safe. Yeah. I, I'm in the same boat, Barry. For me, it's, uh, I don't have kids myself, but I have nieces and nephews and, you know, some grandkids of friends that I, that I work with and, and everybody else. And, uh, especially from California kids that have never been around guns and they're coming from some of those families. And I know, I remember with my niece getting her trained on a 22 when she was 13, 14. Now she was about 10 and it was looking at that thing. Like, Oh my gosh, this is like a crazy machine, you know, like almost fearful of it. And, you know, I, I was training her parents on nine millimeters and working Glock techniques and CCW stuff. And it was, it was scary for her, but once she started to shoot it, and like your daughter, my niece is a crack shot. She was picking that thing up. Her trigger control was great. She was just cutting one ragged hole at seven yards and busting nice. balloons and having a good old time. But it, it took getting over that fear of realizing, hey, this is just a tool, but it's a really deadly tool if it's used improperly. And sometimes if you have to use it for that 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 horrible moment. Um, <clears throat> but it's it's interesting to see the the young kids today, depending on where they come from, what state, what upbringing, you know, what they've had, like you being a gun owner as a father and been introduced to it, to some of the kids I've run across that are hitting me up now and going, you know, I don't, I don't have a, a family members that shoot, but my dad will let me shoot with you because they know you're safe. You're respected. Can I go shooting and learn with you? And I'm like, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm starting to train some young men and, and, and kids that are in that 14 year old range out of the Silicon Valley area that just never had that opportunity. And, you know, there's, responsibility and ownership and pride and character development. I think with it, I see it with all the kids we've trained for years being hunter safety instructors as game wardens. It's just this, uh, this empowerment they get and this confidence. I think that in the age of social media and likes and unlikes and bullying and not having outdoor experience or having to suffer through any type of environmental, you know, hardships, if you will. Uh, I think it's a lost art having the basic firearms knowledge for our kids. And it's, I, I feel very honored and blessed that I get to pay it forward kind of like you're doing with your daughter, but it's super cool to see that. Um, and these are, these are kids that are uh, never going to have that opportunity. And it's, it's really fun to see that. And, 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 you know, in a good situation, maybe they're going to become first responders down the road and pay it forward and maybe be game wardens. And I, I'm getting some of that too. So all that training, you know, has so many good positive benefits that they go outside of just us getting our skills for our particular, uh, our particular tribe. Sure. And I think it shows them uh, the, the reality of a firearm, too, for somebody like you to teach them the, the really true way of a, a firearm and actually holding a real gun. Because I've noticed with, you know, some of maybe my, my nieces and nephews that are hardcore video gamers. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> they all of a sudden assume that they can shoot every single machine gun out there and that they know the, the techniques. And it's like, nah, <laughs> Call of Duty's fun, but it's not the real world. It's not the really real yeah. world. So, you know, I think when a kid finally has the opportunity to maybe learn what it's like to actually fire a weapon and put it on target and, and be consistent yeah. with a shot, that it changes their perspective a little bit. Very much, yeah. Barry, what was the catalyst that kind of got you in love with camping and being outdoors? Uh, my father, honestly. My father and my, and my mother, we've always been an outdoorsy family in that you know, we didn't grow up in a gun family. Uh, we grew up in a fishing family, and I know my dad had a couple shotguns in the closet, um, but that was it. You know, that wasn't, we were allowed to have BB guns, slingshots, things like that. Um, maybe as a kid, did some bad things. I apologize, John Game Warden. Uh, <laughs> hey, I did too growing up, bud. <laughs> I, I, I'm not proud of those poor squirrels, but it did happen. Um, you know, but. We grew up being outdoors. I mean, our generation and, and where I, I grew up in Panama City, Florida, it's a beautiful place. My father was uh, Air Force at the time. We lived on East Bay. Um, and, you know, you get home from school and you're outside. Don't come in till dinner. And then once dinner's over, get back out of the house and don't come home till dark unless you got homework to do. And, and we spent the time swimming and fishing. I grew up fishing. And then when we could, my father would take us camping. And again, that created my love for the state parks because that nice. kind of camping spoke to me. You can get on the trails that we did Volks marches, things of that nature. Um, for those of you that don't know what a Volks march is, it's uh, basically, uh, uh, I think it was brought over from Germany, hence the name, but it's just, uh, it's like doing a, a 5K run or a 10K run, but you walk it and it's easier to do with kids <laughs> nice. and you get a little medal at the end and it was a lot of fun you could collect that and it was a big thing in the military so a lot of 
my dad's friends and stuff would do the bulls marches and he'd take us on those. So, and there was a lot of great campgrounds around the North Florida area and up into Alabama and Georgia. Um, just some wonderful campgrounds that uh, I have great experiences at. And then it, it just, my love of that continued and having an older brother who is very much an outdoorsy person as well. Um, insanely outdoors, the kind of guy that would bring home rattlesnakes and gators. Um, he, uh, <laughs> he talked I'm not a, I'm not a snake person. I don't enjoy snakes like, from a distance. He's the polar opposite. He got the gene of, I can pick up anything and will. Um, wow. Yeah. So he taught me a lot about that kind of nature as well. And a little more the dangerous side and where to look and how to find. Um, Cause we'd, I'd go on snake hunts with them and lizard hunts and things like that. And, and whatnot so that was kind of what got me into it and it, it always stuck with me and i've actually you know as an adult going to college things like that it went away with shine out it went away for a while because you're busy in the real world and you're living in the city um and then you know my wife being a south florida girl was not you know not outdoorsy at all she's a city girl didn't grow up with that uh, afraid of bugs you know <laughs> if I right to be bugs, yeah we live in florida there's bugs um, real big ones <laughs> now she's absolutely in love with it and she's not a gun person she respects them but she's not into it they still make her nervous and scary but she knows what's going on and um knows when i you know have one etc but uh uh now she's the one pushing me to camp more she's like when, when, when are we going next what's going to be the next adventure let's, nice. go, let's go go and to see yeah. that open not only her up, but to bring that into my child, hopefully that continues for the rest of the generations. There's something so primitive, and I don't know if masculine is the right word, because obviously females can camp too, but there's just something about it where you're with family or friends by a campfire, and you spent all day swimming or fishing or hiking. There's just something kind of like, what is that? What is that feeling? Why? Like, I, I, a lot of times people are like, oh, I'm not into camping, and I get it. People are so used to Wi-Fi or a hot shower. And don't get me wrong, I love that stuff too. But just if you can get away and just kind of live on the land for a little bit, there's just something so mentally cleansing about it. And so kind of like what is some stuff you guys like doing when you want to go camping or what are some tools you guys carry that are must-haves of people that want to start camping? What's some gear that you bring out with them? Yeah, wow. There's, <laughs> gosh, guys, I'm, I'm a total gear gear nut. You know, I'm a gadget guy, so that that that's a long conversation, right, Barry? Yeah. Um, but to your first point, John, uh, I, I think you said you know you said it well when you said when you're being around a campfire, when you're with your family, when you're away from internet, when you're looking at the stars, when you're breathing fresh air, chilly, hot, whatever, when you're just in nature's elements, it's it's a nat it's natural endorphins. It's just a natural high, a healthy high. Uh, less distractions mean better communication, better relationships with the people you're spending those quality moments with. And, you know, like we talked about a little bit before, um, we're starting to lose that with the urbanization, with right. social media, with being, you know, being pinned up to that Call of Duty 5 very game, you know, and like you said, and things like that. And I think uh, for men and women both, I know for me, I was blessed to grow up with a, a hardcore conservation family. From granddad to dad to me to aunts and uncles and um you know I, I don't know any different but i can say this i know from when i go back to california and i'm embedded in the city for more than a couple of days i do get irritable you know i do get a little short um i'm, I'm multitasking you know my mind's five steps ahead i'm not in the moment as much as i need to be whereas when i'm in the woods or i'm on the gun range <clears throat> or wherever we're, we're, we're all around the fire guys and we've got a gun training session barry and we're gonna go maybe do a little hunting or we're going to go sit around the campfire and debrief ideas and talk gear equipment, just share stories. Those are those magical moments of, of relationships that are, I think are key and quality. And, and that's, that's what, that's why we get so much out of those outdoor woodsy experiences, John. And, and, and that's something that, that we're losing every day. So I, I love talking about this stuff and, and, and Barry sharing it with you and finding out with your camping background and what you're bringing your family into um, is really cool at it on, on your end. Yeah, I agree. And, and with those sentiments, I mean, uh, for me, I think there's nothing better, say, when you're hunting and it's the yeah. morning, you get out before daybreak, it's dark. And, and in Florida, you know, you're not going to have long spanses of land. It's swamp land and trees. So, you know, your longest right. shot's going to be maybe 200 yards for the most part. Yeah. Maybe. That's pushing it. Um, right. But you get to your, uh, you know, if you're going to do a tree stand hunt or whatever, you get your tree stand and you get up there and you're trying to be as quiet as possible and you finally sit or stand and it's still 
and then you hear the world just come alive. The birds come out, the squirrels, and hopefully they don't yeah. see you, so they start ratting you out. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> you're getting me back from my childhood is what's happening. Um, yeah. But, <laughs> you know, that to me, I could care less at that point if I happen to put food in the freezer or not. For me, that is the most primal, next to God kind of experience you can have in the world is being there and watching the world come alive without the distractions of the morning news or the cars going by or anything like that. It's that to me is everything. Yeah. So what are some stuff kind of, one of the things through COVID I, uh, I've been researching different ways to start like a campfire. Cause I, I mean, I have a yard, but I can cook meat. I can cook some more. So I can have fun with the fire, AKA burn large branches just to get them out of the yard. And, right. uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's all, it's all legal, guys. I got baked potatoes on the fire. We're good. Um, <laughs> so, like, starting a fire and how do you make a homemade fishing pole, stuff like that, is there, is this something you guys just kind of stumbled on or is it, I mean, years of practice? Like, what is some stuff you guys kind of do out there that, it, how easy is it to take a Bic lighter to start a fire? Is there, you guys do something else or you guys just try to do what you do? You know, it's, uh, there's there's a lot of a lot of different methods i know growing up before i had you know was was old enough to have the training from dad and granddad and then eventually military guys and the whole game warden thing i mean it was that five dollar rambo knife after the first rambo movie dropped that oh. had the screw compass on the back yeah. end right it was the cheesiest <laughs> knife ever but it had fish, yeah right but it had fishing line it had hooks it had matches um it had the basics that would get you by if you needed to survive and i know We've, I've gone to a minimalist approach and just tried to lighten my kid up and everything from, you know, when we're in battle on an operation, being as light as possible and heat, when we're doing a cartel operation to getting our guns trimmed down two and a half pounds lighter on a, on a firearm is, you know, makes the difference when you're pushing one or right bury a hunting rifle. You can have an 11 pound hyper accurate sniper rifle that you can't, unless you're in a tree stand, you're never going to do much with it because it's just going to kick your ass all day and finding that, that, that balance, you know? So I go to a minimalist approach. Um, I always have a fire starter kit in my pack. I always have a good blade, a secondary blade, um, enough shelter material to be overnight or more, um, for days at a time. And right now we, uh, Barry, I was telling John right before you came on, we just had, the most snow and the coldest snap we've ever had for the opening of deer and elk season, which just opened this last Saturday mm. that we've had in about 15 years. So we're getting up to, you know, three degree mornings and hunting in 17, 18 degree weather in a tree stand and, you know, and going in places where I might have a put up a blind for a day. And, you know, how do you maintain, you know, not, not going into type of hypothermia, staying warm enough, but not overheating things like that. So, um, having the right equipment to do that is, is, is kind of critical. And there's so many new companies that have the right stuff. And certainly I'm not, I'm, I'm partial to Kuyu stuff because it's really featherweight. Um, you know, I, I work with those guys. I've helped develop some of their stuff and I like lightweight and I like really good stuff in cold weather, especially if you get wet or you start to freeze, will it still breathe? Will it still insulate um, when it gets wet? Um, Cause we always get wet out there. And, and if we get stuck, um, so the fire starter material is critical, um, either a flint stick, you know, something that is going to a big lighter for sure. But if it fails, if it's too cold, if the flint striker, you run out of gas, you got to have a magnesium stick of sorts, some sort of kindling material and just be able to dig down deep to find some kindling material. And you can get a fire going in pretty much any condition if you can get under the snow to get to some of the kindling. Uh, from from that standpoint, but um, the lighter weight stuff that insulates really well layers and, and really good rain gear is critical. Uh, one other thing I've just started to do, and I, I was a holdout and I was really stubborn and I was dumb for doing this, but now that I'm, now that I'm up here in Montana, where guys over the summer when I didn't have a hiking partner a month ago, I was hiking into the Cabinet Mountain Wilderness area, going into these high lakes I've been meaning to explore for like 15 years, and they were you know they're anywhere from a six mile to an 18 mile round trip in a day when it should be an overnighter. And even my closest buddies up here are like, all right, you got an end reach, right? You got a little GPS signal indicator or an SOS. I go, not yet. You know, I've got my old GPS. I'm used to working on a team, but I don't have a team around me anymore. Right. So I'm i I'm, I'm, I'm an old, old dog trying to learn new tricks, so to speak. So I just acquired the, the Garmin end reach uh, beacon, which Bluetooth to your phone, 
where you can put out text of emergencies. If you do the full service, you can send pictures, you can carry on conversations anywhere you're gonna get a GPS signal. And the thing is literally about an inch and a half square. Um, in fact, I've got it in my hunting pack in the truck right now and I can, I can pull it out. But um, those are those are essential, essential, essential things um, on your body that I think you need anytime you're in the woods, whether you're hunting, fishing, or just hiking, and, and you're gonna be cut off without cell coverage. Uh, I agree with you and I'm still the holdout as well. Uh, <laughs> and I, I need to, you know, it's funny listening to you. I think, yes, fire, backup fire, two knives and maybe a space blanket or something that you can make a quick shelter out of is imperative in your pack. Yep. Um, and it, it's also climate, you know, you, you're talking about hunting in three degree weather. Uh, I live in Florida. That's not right. <laughs> right. Um, uh, so I can't imagine the, the, the different preparation you have to do. And, and clothing is even more important there, you know, uh, than it is here, though, you know, it'll get down into the freezing temperatures as well during our hunting season in North Florida. But it's extremely wet all the yeah. time. You wake up in the morning, you're wet. Your boots are going to get wet. So you need to make sure you're yep. insulated there because there is nothing worse than being in a tree stand with cold feet. Uh, blind or walking. It just hurts. And it's not coming back to you getting near the fire again. It's just not. Um, once you're cold feet, you're cold feet for the day. Um, right. so I think those are extremely prepared things and also letting somebody know where you're going to be ahead of time. You know, Absolutely. what am I doing? Uh, even when I go to my hunting lease, which is a relatively small property, typically we go with, um, multiple people, you know, my brother or my brother's best friend. So there's at least a couple of us there and we go, okay, you, I know you're going that direction. You're going to that spot we've, we've located. And I know you're going that way. And we talk in the morning real quick before everybody shoots out or even in the evening. But I also let my wife know, here's where I'm going to be on the map. Here's a screenshot. God forbid something happens. You know where to send somebody. Um, because there is spotty cell service there. And that reminds me that I need to get the, the Garmin thing or something somewhere. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, those are the most important things. You know, you're basic. And then for Florida hunting, uh, hydration. Bring Even if it's just one Big bottle time. of water with you. One yeah. bottle of water. It's amazing how quickly you can get dehydrated and that once that headache and spinning starts to happen you better hydrate quick or you're in trouble yeah i i agree i'm glad you brought up hydration because i forgot to mention that barry um e even in montana on the coldest days you're burning a lot of calories you know and you don't realize how fast you're getting dehydrated just trying to keep warm in those tree stands or the hikes we do when we're not in stands um so it's usually for me a camelback a bladder that I can insulate, that can stay warm enough where it won't freeze. And I use it in the summer all the time. We're really into camelback bladders or something similar. Um, and then having some sort of purification device, whether it's a filter, like a pure pump filter or a catadin, or even a filter straw. The newest filter straw is absolutely amazing. Cause again, being a minimalist for weight and, and keeping your pack light, you can filter out even down, you know, down to the, the worst protozoa, microbes, every, everything you need um, out of just a straw device where you can survive and, 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 and get that water when you need it and stay hydrated, hot or cold. Sure. I, uh, I always watch like those shows like River Monsters, and lately I've caught up to the new season of Meat Eaters. And yeah. <laughs> what those guys do, there's just something like I didn't. I, I knew about the hunting and stuff, but the the concept of teamwork when it comes to moving animals and I mean sometimes those best episodes, the most dramatic parts, are when they don't get that animal and they have yeah. kind of like that setback or kind of like that oh damn it. What can you guys kind of talk about how important teamwork is when it comes to hunting like that? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, for us being in a warmer climate, when if you are lucky enough to harvest an animal you better break it down and get it on ice pretty quick. Yep. Um, and that's the biggest thing is, okay, I've got a 150 pound animal. Hopefully we're talking about Florida deer. So 150 pounds is shooting, shooting high. Yep. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, even a hundred pound animal when it's dead weight is dead weight. And that's hard to carry right. by yourself. Um, and so either if you're lucky enough that you can drag it out to a main road and then you can get the truck or whatever your vehicle is of choice while you're hunting and, and load it up and get it back to camp. Um, you want to get it there, get it cleaned and at least quartered and on ice or cool. And it helps to have a buddy doing that with you because uh, anybody that's broken down an animal knows that it's, you know, it looks easy on TV when you see a professional butcher doing it. It's not right. easy. 
it's just not easy to break um, and it's especially so, I can't imagine with large elk or a moose or yeah. something of that nature when you watch you know the guys on meat eater doing that you're like whoa that is a thousand pounds right yeast and there's two of us to pack that thing out that's work there goes all your calories for one day. It's just dragging that thing out. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, Barry, you hit it on the head. That's when the real work begins. You know, that's when the, the glamour of being out there and hanging out and no distractions and at peace and you make your shot. The work really begins, you know, once you get down to the animal. And um, speaking of the heat that you're dealing with in Florida, I mean, I'm still, I still hunt in California as a non-resident and that's really where it all started. And we have the black-tailed deer that a hundred, 120 pound black-tailed deer is a monster, mm-hmm. you know, neat deer, but, our A zone is 90, sometimes 200 degrees and great yeah. deer in the Silicon Valley foothills or Northern California, but same type of deal. I would much rather harvest a monster trophy size, 250 pound whitetail by myself up here in Montana. If I have to be by myself, cause it's cold and I can take time. I can gut it. I can leave it. I can go get the deer cart. I can hike it back up the hill or I can come home and grab somebody. But in the heat, I don't like to shoot even a small deer by myself because you're right. I, you got about an hour to two hour window to get it cooled down enough and then drive it to a processor. If you're not keeping it in some sort of freezer or doing it yourself at your house where that meat's going to spoil. And that, that's a stressful moment. That is not the fun part of the hunt for sure is seeing that, that meat go to waste. So the teamwork aspect, John, of what you asked us is it, it's awesome. It's absolutely awesome, especially when you have the right group of guys or gals or however the mix is. And they don't have to be really experienced hunters. They just have to be part of the team with a team attitude. Um, and something we kind of have going on up here and, and something, Barry, I, I definitely want to share with you guys is love to get together and do a hunt where we do we do some training, get into a nice hunt together, and then we do it as a team where whoever is on gun, we're all in it to go through the you know, basically just the beautiful ritual of skinning it out quartering it out boning it out if we have to hike it or helping each other take quarters out or you know sh- sharing the load and that's that meat eater is basically showing and steven ranella and those guys are great and we right. had long conversations when i talked with them on their show about the whole thing and what i love about the way steven and yanni and all those guys do it is they don't make it just about some trophy animal and a kill shot like so many other hunting shows that yeah. you could take or leave at this point it's really about the spirit of the wild what conservation means and that relationship and the the the, the mess ups, the mistakes. <laughs> Those <laughs> are the best shows when they have a mess or it doesn't happen. Oh man, and you know, I mean, in, in Murphy's Law of Hunting, it's like there's always a mess up. I've never had a it, close to a perfect hunt, right, bud? It's like. No. No. So um, those are those are the things I look forward to sharing and, and something I want to share with you guys is, uh, is 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 get that and really show everybody that this isn't about killing an animal at all. This is about respecting nature and being in nature together and paying it forward. And, and those to me, those are the best experiences left in life, really, with our loved ones and our friends and family. I agree. I think the killing of the animal is the last part of the puzzle. And for me, I'm, you know, I have nothing against trophy hunters that use the animal, but I, I could care less about a trophy. Honestly, I want to right. get an animal in my freezer that is within the realm of the law. Um, yep. And then what's out there, you know, for me, that's that is the goal is to feed my family without having to go to the, the box store as much as possible. Yeah. And that's I, I love that attitude because trophy hunting, I agree. I mean, I, I certainly uh, after all my hunting experience and, and the different places around the world I've hunted, I certainly look for bigger, more mature animals for uh, for the meat content and for the experience and it being a new species. But I will never and never be one of those guys. And I don't, uh, you know, I definitely don't advocate just going out and shooting that trophy and saying, look, I got this big trophy. That's a record. Look at it on my wall. What'd you do with the meat? Well, uh, I don't know what I did with the meat. The outfitter did whatever with the meat. And and that's just, that's not hunting. Um, no, I, half I, those are canned hunts anyway. And I, I just, I'm not in Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not at all. You can have yeah. that one for five grand or that one for 10. That's right. Just not- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, they're both in a cage. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you want a 400-inch elk? Okay, that's $75,000. <laughs> Just write the check. And I'm like, oh, this is blowing honey down. Yeah. But, but I don't want to get political, right? So, no, one, other, no, the, the, yeah. one of the things growing up, my mom's side of the family were dairy farmers, are dairy farmers in Western New York. So my grandfather and my uncles and cousins were always, I'd always see like these big deer racks mounted on the wall. And I'm like, always, like, I've always kind of been respectful of hunting. Well, it was like, this is probably... 
seven, eight years ago, for the first time, I kind of went on a, I'm not going to say a hunt per se, but my grandfather and uncle were, had shot a deer. And my grandfather was like, hey, have you ever deconstructed a deer, broken it down? And I've always been like, well, you just cut the head off, you stuff, like, whatever. Like, but no, it's like, we're going to take the meat, we're going to make jerky, we're going to make steaks, we're going to make sausage, and we're going to do all this stuff. And then I'm like, okay, cool, what are you doing the rest of this? Well, the antler pieces, we don't use the bones, I'm going to make a cane. I'm going to make door handles or yep. the skin you're going to use to make a rug or a what. And I'm just like, you don't realize it, but for all the longest time growing up, I've been like, they just shoot the deer for whatever. I mean, they have to up there with the corn and the crop. Like I, I totally get that, but they use every part of this animal. And it goes back to what you guys are saying. There's such a respect to the animal that hunting for sport. I mean, I, I don't get it. But if you're going to use the meat and all the stuff from the animal, like that's that's the circle of life, and I love that aspect of it. Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, absolutely. And it, and it, and it, Go ahead. I'm sorry, John. Oh no worries. I was I was just pointing out to John to your point, and uh, that that's exactly it. Are you utilizing all of the animal? I mean, case in point is if I like like right now I'm sitting on we have a chronic waste disease thing going on up here in north northwestern Montana CWD the uh, you know it's starting to affect whitetail populations a little bit of mule deer some elk but mostly whitetail in certain parts of the country and unfortunately it's it's spread out here and trying to keep it you know off the Idaho border and in California Washington etc but something we're doing right here in Lincoln County is they've expanded the area for non-resident and resident hunters to get a very inexpensive tag and harvest a doe or a buck. Um, and you know, only one out of like a thousand deer are actually gonna have CWD if even that percentage, but they have test stations. And so these deer need to be culled out for study because they are overpopulated. Obviously there's a disease factor, but 999 of those deer are gonna be edible. So it's a great opportunity to balance the herd from a conservation aspect, but also give people the ability to, you know, hunt a doe that needs to go down for conservation, even though it's not a buck, and utilize all the meat. I mean, there, we got soup kitchens. I got Indian reservations in California we've donated to. And certainly when my freezer is full, my family's gonna need some meat. If not, I'm gonna, you know, in Africa, when I'm hunting South Africa, you can, if I can import that meat legally and bring it back over, I would love to, but they don't let us do that, guys. So it goes to villagers that literally, um, my, my Gems buck, that I, that I harvested a couple of years ago. And then my uh, black wildebeest fed like one village for almost eight months to a year. Wow. And that was their food source, right? So I'm like, hey man, this is great. I'm not here for trophy hunt. I'm here to hunt Africa for the first time. I can't harvest the meat, but I wanna make sure every piece of edible meat and protein goes, and they're just waiting. I mean, there's no issues that it's not gonna go to the wrong place. And the horns being used for everything from canes to candle holders to, you know, um, carving tools and those hides i mean those hides basically from the textile especially in third world countries that is that's their blankets that's their insulation uh, layers it's amazing there isn't a piece of that those animals overseas especially in africa and new zealand and things like that that doesn't that don't get utilized and it's really cool to see john to your point and and that's what we need to promote i agree uh, you know it's it's there's nothing worse and i i know uh, you try to you utilize as much as you can, but even then, I you know I don't have a way to process certain things. I'm not going to spend time with the bones, so you end up feeding it to the, the local coyote population, things like that. But you try to right. use as much, and even that waste is is uh, sometimes you feel shameful for it. And also, you know, God forbid you take a, a little off shot or it's a little sideways, and you end up gut shotting a deer, and some of the meat goes yeah. to waste. Or, you know, it's like ah, oh, that's so frustrating. Even when you think you had it, right. and then you realize that. It wasn't clean on the other side. And, uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, those things are all extremely important. And when you can give it to somebody who's going to use the meat, I think that's what it's about. And, and honestly, there's nothing better tasting than right. Wild game yeah. There just isn't. Those people that say, oh, it's gaming, it's gross, just haven't had real game. <laughs> yeah, and, they, and, and Barry, they haven't had it prepared right, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's one of the things. And there's there's recipes I want to I wanna share with you guys of – the mule deer, I, I harvested a really nice mule deer buck. Actually, my first mule deer up here, because we have mule deer and whitetail in Montana, but largely it's mostly whitetail. Mule deer are very sparse, really up high. And I ran into a really nice buck in the rut on my birthday last year, which was just birthday buck meant to be one of those, you know, great experiences, you know, um, really blessed to make it happen. But I had uh, these, these uh, 
jalapeno cheese smoky sausages made out of a lot of that deer Damn. and then the, and then the back straps like teriyaki marinated and i mean we are still like if i have a get together the band comes over and we do a jam and we're doing a practice and we're going to do dinner and then socialize i'm like okay we're going to do one pack guys because this has to last man so we're going to have four <laughs> links we're going to have them cut into little slices they're going to be on toothpicks and that's the appetizer then we'll go to the steaks for the entree because they right. it's just and then i get these and you know these non-hunters guys that just have never had anything like oh this i'm gonna i'm gonna eat deer just close your eyes don't think about it and taste it or wild hog especially you know those california wild and the hogs you have down there barry in florida same thing people don't realize how just lean and rich in protein without the impurities in in, in wild feral pigs that are taking over the country as an invasive species is a great protein source and um it's just amazing when 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 this stuff is prepared right non-hunters from protein standpoint end up loving this stuff and so uh, I, I like to share those recipes. It's a fun process. Kind of like the last question for everyone here. And I know if Barry and I kind of come across a, say we're hunting and we come across, it looks like a stack of animals that looks like they're kind of mass killed or some weird, like a chemical spill or something that looks off or illegal. Right. What is our kind of, what, who do we reach out to? How do we report kind of what we come across? Do we reach out to the local game warden? And obviously we yeah. should have those numbers if we're going out hunting, right? Yeah. And you know what, you guys, whether you're, whether you're a sworn game warden or sheriff or, you know, LEO in the forest or BLM ranger or forest ranger, or any of that, um, you guys are all part of the thin green line. You know, the thin green line I talked about with Joe and I, I, I mean, it's kind of, I, I over preach it. I'm sure John, like you and I have talked on your other podcast, but um, we could not make good wildlife cases and keep these species in balance without guys like you as conservationists out there turning in poachers that are completely doing it wrong. And we're not talking about someone that made a mistake, you know, that right. didn't notch their tag right, you know, their daughter's right. out for her first deer and, you know, cut part of the tag and didn't scratch it out correctly. That's not a poacher. That's an excited kid and an excited father that uh, didn't quite get it right, you know, or took, took one fish that was a quarter inch short because it was her first trout. You don't write that is not a poaching situation, but you find a stack of animals, <clears throat> excuse me, probably a mass killing, whether it was poison in a cartel right. row or they were just sport shot and maybe the heads were cut off for trophies and all the animals out there. Game wardens, dude, that is like the super case for us. You want to talk about getting a game warden excited when you see just a we call it wanton waste. That's the that's the actual name of the violation, wanton waste of game. Not to mention all the other trophy violations that, that we add. So on your hunting license in every state, and Barry, I'm not sure in Florida, but John and where you're at and where I'm at in Montana, but I know in California, there's a, a, a what we call cow tip in California. It's a turn in a poacher line. So even if you don't have the game warden's number or you can't get out to 911, worst case scenario, you can always call the sheriff's office and let them know and I wanna get in touch with the local game warden. Um, you'll get that out. If not, you just call the poaching line on your license that you got to have in your possession legally anyway. So it's kind of with you, even if you don't have your wallet, your license and you, you know, your notebook or your, or your phone or whatever. Um, for, so you want to, you want to turn that in. The other thing you want to do is if you can, and in the age of these crazy smartphones, you can get a GPS coordinate on any picture you take, right. or if, if you're, if your tracking is off on your phone where you don't want your GPS on your pictures, like I don't, you know, obviously the world would know all, all the, you know, secret spots, you can turn your GPS on and get a tracking, but get some photos of the violation if you can safely. And there's not a threat in the area, um, get a GPS location of where it was, just kind of get a good route and backtrack out of there and kind of map your route. So you can articulate to whoever you're going to call it fishing game or fish and wildlife, whatever the agency's called in your particular state. Um, those details, because if you get that for us, you dress us for success. Um, and then just getting conservationists that are passionate enough, not only to turn somebody in, but to say, Hey, I'm here to help. And, uh, I can help you find the site. I can help provide information. I'm available for, you know, follow-up interviews of something I saw. Um, I, I kind of call it being, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, game wardens, uh, satellite game wardens on the thin green line as hunters, you're out there, you guys come out of a trail after seeing that big stack of dead wildlife, you might see a couple vehicles parked maybe where you are. It wouldn't hurt to take a photo of those vehicles and maybe get a license plate number because there's a good chance, not a for sure, but at least we have something to go on to people in the area. And if they weren't involved in the violation, we can at least contact them and get some witness information to support maybe what they saw that might've been part of the same violation you saw. Cause um, those are heinous, heinous cases. And you know, you wipe out a couple of big trophy bucks and just leave them. I mean, think of the gene pool 
in that particular area for the herd. And uh, some of my highlight, you know, non-special ops cartel hunting cases that I go back and think about were those hand steer cases. And they were, um, they mean everything, you know, and it's real frustrating not to catch those guys because every time you don't catch that type of poacher, that is how they behave everywhere. Um, a lot of times, you know, just no respect for wildlife. It's all about the sport. It's all about the ego. It's all about big racks. And, um, I'm sure we, we're not gonna have time to go into it, but when we're hanging out, I'll tell you guys some crazy poaching stories that go back, uh, that'll just make you sick. And, um, you know, and you don't catch all of them. And when you don't, that those are the ones that, that kind of haunt you after you retire. <laughs> I, I right. can't, I can't imagine. Have you ever come across something like that, Barry, where you've had to kind of, uh, react to a situation that you think is kind of weird when you're out there? Luckily, no. I think the only thing I've come across is maybe people poaching on, on my land where you catch them on a game. Trespass. Yeah. Trespass. But that's not something you necessarily, even if you do report it, you know you're not going to be able to chase that down. It's, it's long, right. long and gone. Um, so other than that, not necessarily. I mean, sometimes you see a good old boy that maybe you see something on the side of the road you know, on the highway that everybody's been driving by that you can tell was probably one of those situations where somebody was in their, you know, in their truck, took a shot, got their horns and left the poor thing on the side of the road. You see that sometimes, um, but it's very few and far between, but I, I've been lucky enough never to run across something as heinous as a, you know, a stack or somebody who's been mass killing. Thank God. Nice. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you guys for uh, taking the time today. This was a lot of fun. And, uh, Absolutely. It's I cool. look forward to getting together for real. That'd be nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's cool. Actually, uh, <laughs> I like, like it. It's cool. Like, obviously, Barry Shinedown, the John, conservation, author, all this other stuff. But it's kind of cool having like minds that kind of operate different areas of what the world, but can kind of come together and talk about cool stuff like conservation and hunting and like a second amendment stuff. So I want to thank you guys for that. It's uh it's been a blast. Oh man, my, my pleasure and good good to be on, John, and very good to see you for the first time and actually get to talk past the dialogue we've had. And uh yeah, I look forward to getting together for reels, like you said, and doing some good outdoor outdoor adventures. Awesome.